Lord, we thank you for the privilege of your word. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together even on a hot day like this and we can make as a priority in our lives the, the, the feeding on your word. And Lord, I ask today that we would be hungry, that we would be teachable, that your word would, would truly speak to our hearts in such a way that change would take place, that you would simply use me as your mouthpiece to speak your truth. And uh, Lord, that you would be glorified by our responses, by our thoughts, by our interactions with this text. And Lord, we give you the glory today, and we ask for your help in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. A 12-year-old boy has just had his birthday, and for his birthday, what he really, really wanted was a brand new bike. Not just a normal bike, but a special bike. You see, his father went off on the weekends and he would do mountain biking. And he so wanted to spend time with his father. And so he, he knew what a good bike was like. So they looked around for one that would be suitable for him. He wanted a specialized brand mountain bike. He wanted to have those thick tires so that they could grip the ground well, whether it was on dirt, whether it was on asphalt, whatever it was. He wanted to have disc brakes because those are the best. They don't lock up really fast. He wanted to make sure that the, the front forks of the bike had shocks just to, to help ease the, 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 the smoothness of the ride. And he wanted it to be black. And so he came home on his birthday after school, and he walks into the living room. And what does he find there but a brand-new specialized bike, just like he wanted. Man, he was so excited. Well, a little, little while later that night, his parents also came down, and they said, you know what, since you have a bike, we also have a helmet for you because you have to wear a helmet, and we have some riding gloves, and those will protect your hands from the grips that are on the handlebars. And he's like, man, this is so good. I can't wait till tomorrow so when I come home from school, I can start riding my bike. And it just so happened in, in the, the, the events of, of that week that his parents were leaving the next day for a two-week trip, and they were leaving him in the care of his older brother, his 24-year-old brother. And the parents had some very, very specific words of caution for his 24-year-old brother. They said, make sure your younger brother doesn't hurt himself on his new bike. Make sure he wears his helmet and his gloves, or you will be in trouble when we get home. I'm sure parents have never had any kind of talk like that at all. The parents left. The next day, the 12-year-old boy came home from school so excited, ready to ride his bike for the first time, and he was thinking to himself, what great parents I have who would bless me with such a great gift like this. I truly am blessed. But when he gets home, his older brother had locked his bike in the shed, and he said, if you want to ride your bike, you have to do some chores first. You've got to take out all the garbage in the house, and then you have to cut the grass. Then you might be able to ride your bike. So dutifully, because he wants to ride his bike, he goes and takes care of all the trash. He cuts the grass just perfectly, and he goes to his brother and says, my chores are done. And so his brother walks over to the shed, he unlocks the shed and pulls out the bike. Now, to the young boy's horror, his brother had added training wheels to this bike. Not just the small training wheels, but like big eight-inch tire wheels to this bike. He's like, you are not going to fall over on this bike. And not only that, he pulls out his helmet, but on his helmet was like two more feet of padded foam. You are going to be safe. And he says, I know mom and dad got you some gloves, but you're going to be wearing these boxing gloves because I don't want you to be hurt at all. And not only that, he says, you've got knee pads, you've got elbow pads, you've got shin pads, and you're wearing these steel toe boots. And by the way, the only place you can ride your bike is in this 20-foot patio area. 
have fun. Well, he was like, okay, this is what I got to do. So there he is with all his gear, and he's getting on the bike, and he's trying to move around. He can't ride this thing. It is impossible. It's no longer fun. He could hardly pedal. It had become too much work. And he was frustrated, and he was saying to himself, I can't wait for mom and dad to get back. Now, this is a little story that is a very bad modern-day illustration of what is going on in this text. You say, I have no idea what you're talking about, Pastor Rod. It will slowly hit you as we begin to unfold this. See, God had given Israel a very special gift, and that gift was called Sabbath. But that gift, which was supposed to be a blessing had been turned into a burden, something that was no longer really enjoyable, but something that was rather daunting. And so what does Jesus do in the context of hearing about all this? And this is really the proposition. This is the direction this this section of Scripture is is going in. Jesus condemns and exposes the hypocrisy and the hard-heartedness of man-made religion. And of course, that man-made religion is representative of the Pharisees and the scribes. And Jesus comes along, and he reveals the religion of that day for what it really is. He shows how it's hypocritical. He shows how it has as its root a hard-hearted attitude. It was a religion that has taken what was supposed to be a blessing, a gift from God, and turned it into a burden. Now, before we jump into the two encounters that we find in this text, I would like to to go to the end of the text and just show you that, that there is something else that is going on in the greater story that Mark is showing us. There has been a buildup a buildup of antagonism. And Jesus then has made some enemies. So notice, first of all, the two enemies that are recorded for us in verse 6. It says, The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. I mean, this is how the story ends. This is how the encounters end. The Pharisees now team up with the Herodians. Imagine trying to explain to your child the following question about history. Dad, you've told me about how horrible Stalin was, how he murdered so many people when he came to power in his country, and how he starved thousands of Ukrainian farmers. So why were we allies in the Second World War? What did we have in common with him and his communistic dictatorship? It's a pretty good question when you think about it. And the only real answer that we can come up with is this, that we both had a common enemy. And his name was Adolf Hitler. And we wanted to stop Adolf Hitler from continuing the atrocities that he was committing all across Europe. And so there was a coming together, so to speak. There was a kind of unity against a common enemy. And that's really what we have going on here. We have two groups that, for all practical purposes, have been and were opposed to each other. You see, the Herodians were the followers of Herodias Antipas, the son of that former ruler, Herod the Great. But the Herodians had sold themselves to Rome. They had partnered with Rome to to oversee the people and to keep them at bay. It was a political move. And the Pharisees didn't like the Herodians because they had compromised Israel. You see, the Pharisees, they were devout nationalists. They were the ones who loved their country, but they were the religious front. 
And they were the conservative religious front at that point in time. And so they were opposed to each other in so many other ways. But when it comes to Jesus, they're united together. And what are we told in verse 6? They counseled with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. Jesus had caused a stir politically as he went through the towns and the villages and people were coming to see him. But he had also caused a stir religiously because he was confronting the Pharisees and he was doing things that was really shaking them to the core. And you've often heard people say, Jesus always brings people together. But not always in the same way. <laughs> Sometimes he brings people together because they are opposed to the gospel. Sometimes he brings them together because they're united over gospel unity, and that's a good thing. Now, why was Jesus so hated by these two groups? And I would say primarily our focus is going to be on the Pharisees. So let's just kind of walk through Mark's gospel, what we've read so far, just really briefly. You don't have to write all this down, but just a reflection of what we've seen so far. Mark's gospel was written to both Jewish and Gentile believers in Rome who were enduring suffering under the hand of the likes of Nero. And so it was a gospel written for the purpose of encouragement, encouraging those who were believers and it was written in such a way that it could be read fast. That's why it moves. That's why the accounts are short. So here you are, suffering persecution. I want to read this account of Jesus. This is just a quick kind of flashover of Jesus' life. That was the purpose. It was also for the purpose of evangelism. In other words, it was a gospel record to be used in that context to share and to communicate that Jesus is the Son of God who is the suffering servant. And Jesus then comes with this radical message. And what is this radical message that he has? The time is fulfilled. This is verse 14 of chapter 1. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So he comes preaching a message, and it's radical. And then he begins to call disciples. And those disciples are Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Jesus comes and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so they get out of their boats and they start following Jesus. Now the first time we see uh, Jesus in a synagogue, we see him casting out de a, a demon. And the people who are there, they are just amazed, not only at his, uh, his authority, but also amazed at his power. And Jesus, after that, goes into the villages and towns, and he begins to, to minister to the people. He's preaching the gospel. He's casting out demons. He's healing those who are sick. And we know that he begins to be incredibly popular as a miracle worker, not necessarily as one that, uh, that people want to hear the gospel. They want it to be healed. And so people are chasing him down. And that's why it says there in verse 37 of chapter 1, everyone is looking for you. This is what the disciples are saying when they come to find Jesus. Everyone's looking for you. Now things start to take a turn. Because Jesus now finds himself in a, in a house, his house, I think, or at least his home for that time period. And while he is there, a, a large crowd gathered. And in that crowd were some religious elite. And he begins teaching. And there was no room for anyone. And you know the story. There were some people that came with a paralyzed man, and they wanted to get him to Jesus, and they break open the roof, and they, they lower him down. And in the context of what goes on, Jesus tells that man, your sins are forgiven, and the religious people start to go crazy. They're not saying it outside. They're saying it in their heart. How could he say this? This is blasphemy. And then he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up and walk. And so not only does he forgive this man's sins, he heals him. And everyone is stunned. I mean, they are thunderstruck. They are amazed. And then we find Jesus calling um, his disciple Matthew. And as a result of that, Jesus is spending time with Matthew's friends, tax collectors 
and the sinners. And the Pharisees cannot comprehend how one who would handle the word of God would lower himself so much to interact with the scum of the earth, so to speak. Offended that Jesus would do that. And Jesus says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Then the Pharisees came again to Jesus trying to catch him out. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 18 and following. And they're questioning him, why, why is it that John's disciples are fasting? Why is it the Pharisees are, are fasting, but you don't fast? And Jesus simply responds, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In other words, I'm the bridegroom. There's no reason to fast. I'm here. I am the one who sustains. Now, all along, I haven't even touched on it. He's using language and titles like son of man or bridegroom, and he's identifying himself as this Messiah foretold in the Old Testament. And so what we see here is this growing conflict between Jesus and the religious elite. Jesus has come declaring himself as the son of man, and he's challenging the very heart of what the Pharisees held dear. And at the end of our text, we see the extent of the anger and the offense that Jesus is to these religious men. They've had enough. In our vernacular, they would say, we've had enough to hear with him. And we're going to now do what we can to get rid of them. So much so that they are willing to join together with their other enemies, the Herodians, for the purpose of destroying Jesus. They hate Jesus so much because he is confronting them for the very things they value and hold dear, and he is exposing them for what they really are, hypocrites and people who have hard hearts. And we will see that unfold here in just a minute. And friends, it is worth us remembering that uh, this is not just happening back in Jesus' day. This is also happening today. There is an antagonism toward Jesus. There's an antagonism toward the gospel, and it's growing, and it's growing, and you feel it, and you sense it, and it continues to grow. There is a, there's a political arm, realm, whatever you want to call it, that is anti-Jesus, that is anti-gospel, that is anti-Christian, and then there's the order of man-made religion that is turning on Christ as much as they can. Now, here's, here's the reality of things. If we're beginning to hear that if you identify yourself as a Bible-believing Christian, that you believe the Bible is God's Word, not only are you considered to be an ignorant simpleton, but you're also considered to be a bigot and the one that is full of hate for your fellow man. Now, that's the kind of feeling that's going out there. Because you believe this, you're hateful. You're a bigot. Now, friends, it's the same kind of stuff. There's a, there's a purposeful attack against the things of Christ. And it's worth reminding ourselves what Jesus said in John chapter 15 and verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now, we don't want to give anyone an excuse to point a finger at us because of anything that we have done to justify their attitude toward us. But if we're simply saying, thus says the Lord, and people are offended by that, and we're doing it graciously, we're doing it lovingly, we're doing it compassionately, then they are accountable to him. And they are really offended at Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, the Jesus foretold in the Old Testament, arriving in the New Testament as that promised Messiah. So now, having said that, let's consider the two enemies of the gospel. Now, would you agree with me that life is busy? The rigors of work, repairing the house, 
parenting, school, homework, projects, all that takes their toll. And if you're like me, you find yourself saying on occasion, I'm tired, I need a what? Vacation. This past summer, our family was able to go to Lake Tahoe, North Lake Tahoe, highly recommend it, had an absolutely fantastic time there. But just like any other vacation, there's work that needs to be done on the front end. You know, you have suitcases that you need to pack, you have, you have menus you need to figure out, you have to make sure you have all the equipment that you need to take with you, make sure that it can fit, make sure it gets there, and then, then when you get to your destination, you have to unpack everything and get the kitchen all set up. We stayed at a condo, so we didn't have to worry about putting linens on and that kind of stuff, but you know, there was work to be done, and you finally like, oh, okay, I'm here, now I can enjoy myself. But I've been on vacations, in particular camping vacations, when it's like I just, I just dread coming home because there's so much work that needs to be done that I can honestly say, I need a vacation from my vacation. You with me there? You've been there? This is supposed to be a break, but often it becomes hard work. And often when we return from vacation, we have to, to, to re, recoup from the hard labor that was necessary to make it a good vacation. Now, if you're English, you don't go on vacations. You go on holiday, right? Now, why is that significant? Because the word holiday comes from the combination of two words, holy and day. And according to the American Heritage Dictionary, holiday is a day free from work that one may spend at leisure, especially a day on which custom or the law dictates a halting of general business activity to commemorate or celebrate a particular event. Or it's a religious day, a holy day. Now, did you know that you have God to thank for implementing a principle for us to follow? And it begins in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Genesis chapter 2 and verses 2 and 3. I would encourage you to look here and see what's going on. Because what we're actually talking about here is the Sabbath. This is supposed to be a holy day, a holiday. Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God, by his very example, instituted a pattern for mankind to follow. Work six days, on the seventh day, rest. Work six days, on the seventh day, rest. This rest was a gift. And then a little later in, second, uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 5 and verse 12 and following, this is what we find. This is the fourth commandment. So this is the law that he gave Moses and the children of Israel. Listen as I read. It says, Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servants and your female servants may what? May rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What then was the purpose of the Sabbath day? The Sabbath day was given by God to be something good. He is the example. He took a break on the seventh day. And he knows that our bodies need rest. We need time to renew. But he also put in there a time to remember, a time to reflect. 
And so the Sabbath day was a gift. It was a blessing for his children. And you were to stop your work and to enjoy the day and to enjoy the rest. But through the years, the Pharisees examined the commandment and noticed that it forbade working. And they started to ask themselves the question, what exactly is work? How can we make sure that we avoid such work? And as with so many of the commandments, the Pharisees created this lengthy list of regulations which would surround the individual with a hedge of protection to make sure he or she never was in danger of breaking a commandment. So, it started out well-intentioned, but just like the, the older brother in the, the bike illustration, it ended up being a burden. In time, disregard of these regulations became equated with disobedience to God's law. So what God had established to be a blessing to his children turned into bondage by the religious elite. Now the, the day of rest had evolved into a day of strict observance. In other words, the day became more a day of work than a day of rest. You see where this is going. Listen to some of the regulations they established, and I'm not kidding about this. One section alone of the Talmud, the major compilation of Jewish tradition, has 24 chapters listing Sabbath laws. You could only travel 3,000 feet from your own house. I'm glad I have a Fitbit now because I wouldn't want to go over, right? They didn't have those back then. You could not carry an item heavier than a dried fig. Not one of those back there. Those aren't dried. They still have weight to them. Throwing an object with one hand and catching in the other was prohibited because it was considered work. How about this? A woman could not look into a mirror for fear that if she saw a gray hair, she would be tempted to pull it out. And that would be work. Aren't you glad we're not under that anymore, right? Here's another one. False teeth could not be worn because they exceeded the weight limit for burdens. I could go on and on. In fact, one could rest more on their day of work than on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath was supposed to be a holiday. And it would be appropriate to say that the Jews needed a vacation from their vacation. They were frustrated. They were anxious with this man-made system religion. And so with that kind of as a backdrop, let's jump into these two encounters where, where Jesus reveals that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. And that is the principle that really drives through this text. So notice, first of all, the hungry, the hungry. Here we find the disciples picking grain on the Sabbath. Verse 23, one, one Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields. And as they made their way, the disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Now, in reading this text, I really don't think that the Pharisees were hiding in ditches or behind, you know, behind hedges trying to catch Jesus and the disciples out so that they could point something at him. That, they may have done that later, but, but this is really not what's going on here. I think this is a very normal and natural activity. Jesus was with, with the disciples, and they were walking, and the disciples really don't have an issue with what they're doing. And they shouldn't have an issue with what they're doing because they were acting according to God's word in Deuteronomy chapter 23. This is what it says, verse 25. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. And the people understood this was all part of God's kindness to his people. 
Those who were poor, those who did not have much, or maybe those who were on a journey had the freedom to go through a grain field, and they could, they could glean off of that grain field what they could hold in their hands. So they were simply functioning according to what God had revealed in his word. But the Pharisees had added their rules and regulations and considered those rules and regulations now to be lost. So picking grain was considered to be reaping. Rubbing grain was threshing. Blowing the grain to get rid of the chaff, that's winnowing. All of that considered to be work, and all of that, according to them, violated the Sabbath. Now listen to Jesus' response. He could have answered them differently. He could have kind of, you know, addressed their pettiness. But instead of that, he goes to the Word of God. Notice what he says. Have you never read? Now, consider who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees. He's speaking to those who pride themselves as being the holders and the protectors and the, the, the authorities on what? The Word of God. So when he says that, this is kind of a, an ouch moment. They must have felt the, the sting in Jesus' words. It's like going up to a, a Shakespeare scholar and saying to them, have you ever read this, this is play, it's called Macbeth. Beth. You, know, you know anything about that? Of course they do. Of course the Pharisees have read what Jesus is just about to quote them. But the reason why he's bringing this up is because he wants the Word of God to expose their hearts. So he's testing them, and he's taunting them, and he's using their knowledge of Scripture against them. See, the problem wasn't that God's Word was... The problem was that God's Word wasn't honored... It was only honored in name only. It wasn't studied for the purpose of being obedient. It was studied for the purpose of holding up the traditions that they had established. So Jesus now directs them to their hero and father, David. And here's what it says in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 26. And this is a story you find in 1 Samuel 21, verses 1 through 6. And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. See, David and his men were, were desperate. They were famished. They were refugees running away from the wrath of King Saul. And so he, he, he went and he begged of Ahimelech, who was the, the priest at that time, for bread. But he said, well, no one is, is supposed to eat that bread. It's the bread of presence except for the priests. And Ahimelech asked David and his men if they were ceremonially clean. And David said, yes, we are. And Ahimelech gives them the bread. And his men are satisfied with the bread that they were given. And it's interesting that the Old Testament never condemns David for doing that or Ahimelech for giving out the bread. So what is Jesus' point in pointing this out? If David and his men were hungry and ate without condemnation, then the disciples of Jesus who were hungry can pick grain and eat without condemnation also. The very hero of your scriptures is an example of why this is okay. Matthew's account is helpful because he adds a quotation from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where it says, I desire compassion, not a sacrifice. And what's going on here is this. The Lord is willing for a ceremonial reg uh, regulation to be violated when doing so was necessary to meet the needs of people. What had happened here is that the Pharisees had elevated their rules and regulations, the ceremonies, so much 
They now had become hypocrites in how they viewed and interacted with people. Notice what Jesus goes on to say. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. God established the Sabbath to benefit man, not to place him in bondage. So to put it a little differently. When ceremony is held over compassion, we have missed the heart of God and show ourselves to be hypocrites. The Sabbath was created by God as a gift to mankind, to be a blessing, not a burden, to be a delight, not a dread. And friends, it's so important for us to to see that. I think I've shared this story with you before at another time, but I thought about it as we related to this. My father, as you know, uh, worked uh, in Tel Aviv for British Airways. He was the airport manager at the Ben-Gurion Airport back in the 60s. And he told me a story years ago about, uh, about over 30 rabbis who had come into the airport because they were all coming into, um, into Israel and in particular into Jerusalem for a special conference. And the problem was, as is often the case when you travel, that their plane had been delayed so that they were all up in arms because they had arrived late on a Friday afternoon going into evening, and now it was the Sabbath, and they had exceeded already the allotted amount of distance that they could travel on the Sabbath. What are they going to do? And, of course, my, my dad's like what can I do? You're here. Um, I can't, I, what can I do? And my, the only thing my dad could think of was, well, maybe I can get them a room and they can all stay there until the end of the Sabbath. And at the end of the Sabbath, they can go on their merry way and get to the conference. But of course, they were all upset and frustrated with the whole thing. Well, it just happened that among them was a rabbi who was somewhat senior. And so he asked my father if he could please make a phone call. So my father took him to a room, and he was making this phone call. And about 15, 20 minutes later, the the senior rabbi came out and says, all right, everyone, we can go right now. We have have been, been promised that we will be receiving a special reprieve due to the circumstances and will not be found guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Now, when I first heard that, I found it to be pretty humorous. But at the same time, I found it to be just an illustration of bondage and fear and confusion and really just how how contrary to God's Word it is. And yet, as I'm studying this passage this week, I'm thinking to myself, that actually is what God would intend to happen, that there are some times because of man's need that the ceremony or the standard that he has put up is, is set aside because man needs it. See, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So for those men to stay at the airport in fear that they might violate the Sabbath would betray the words of Christ here. It would be bondage. It wouldn't be rest. God's compassion allows for the breaking of ceremony. If you're hungry... And if you're stuck in an airport and you happen to be a rabbi. But there's a hypocrisy that is evident among those Pharisees. Notice, secondly, there's a healing. And this is where we have this encounter that Jesus has with the man with the withered hand. Jesus now is going head-to-head with the religious elite. He enters into their territory once again. He goes into the synagogue. This is an away game, so to speak, with away fans. Listen to verse 1 and 2 and 3. Again he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might, what? Accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. In the face of of the wolves, Jesus is now in complete control. And he calls the man with the withered hand forward. 
The idea of withered means dry. It was just dried up. It wasn't able to be used at all. And here's what Jesus says. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save a life or to kill? Which is, which is the purpose of the Sabbath? Which is the priority on the Sabbath? Which is right on the Sabbath? And the point is clear. God had given the Sabbath as a blessing, not a burden. As, as a means of compassion, not prioritizing the sacrifice over the needs of mankind. The, the ceremonies were extremely important to God. Don't, don't, don't forget that. But not to the neglect and care of his own people. Those who were truly needy, hungry, in need of healing should be noticed and extended mercy and compassion. And the Pharisees in their pursuit of righteousness and holiness and godliness, had forgotten about people. They've forgotten about people. They've forgotten about compassion. They've forgotten about tenderness. Their focus was on performing the religious ceremony. But the Lord of the Sabbath was here to set things straight. To not do good on the Sabbath was evil. To not save a life on the Sabbath was evil. Both would be a violation of the purposes of the Sabbath. How did the Pharisees respond to Jesus' confrontation? Notice what it says. They were silent. They didn't have an answer. Because Jesus had exposed them with the truth. He had shown them their hypocrisy. He has shown them their hard-heartedness. And that's why he, he jumps right away at verse 5. It says, and he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. See, friends, the, the, the two obstacles to the gospel that are revealed in this text are man's hypocrisy and man's hard-heartedness that gets in the way, and it gets in the way by virtue of religion, where ceremony and ritual and form takes priority over compassion for those who have needs. It almost seems that Jesus utters the next words but in some kind of a mixture of disgust as well as compassion. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out his hand And his hand was restored. And as I, as I read this, I'm reminded of the words that are recorded in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 15. This is the fourth commandment. This is what I already read earlier. Let me read it again. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. I don't know if there is supposed to be symbolism here or not, but think with me through this. The mighty hand and outstretched arm had become a withered hand and an outstretched arm. This was a, a picture of the condition of the, the religious uh, uh, nature of Israel at that point in time. What was supposed to be a strong and mighty hand had become a withered hand. Why? Because it was eclipsed. By man's hypocrisy and his hard-heartedness. And how do the Pharisees respond to this example and correction? Did the miraculous healing in their presence change their mind about who Jesus was and what he was saying? Did they now seek to emulate the compassion that Jesus gave? Not at all. Verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. When your hearts have been exposed for what they really are and you are not humble enough to receive it, your only recourse is to go on the attack. Snuff him out. If we snuff him out, we don't have to worry about what he has to say. Oh, he's right, but we're not going to give him the satisfaction 
of knowing that he's right. Yeah, he exposed us for who we really are, but we're not going to give him the satisfaction of that. In fact, we are going to work together to get rid of him. But they were dealing with the Lord of the Sabbath. What does that actually mean? It means that he is greater than David, the David that we read just a few verses earlier. He is the the master of the Sabbath. In fact, as we sang earlier today, he is the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a means of pointing to the one who ultimately would bring rest, would bring joy, would bring satisfaction. That's why as you come to this passage, don't think about, oh, how does this relate to Sunday? It has nothing to do with Sunday. This all has to do with the Old Testament economy because Jesus is the fulfillment. He is the ultimate satisfier. He is the ultimate one who provides rest. Listen to the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews here makes a very subtle application of Jesus' Sabbath by first noting that whereas the original Joshua failed to bring rest to his people, the ultimate Joshua, Jesus, would do so. Hebrews 4, 9 and 10. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. We find the elements of rest, to find the elements of the, sab- of the Sabbath provided by Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross. So Jesus has come to mercifully meet the needs of his people. He brings regeneration, renewal, peace, and rest. And that's why Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, you know it very well, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I will give you rest. You see, oftentimes we think in the Old Testament, we think of the Sabbath, we're thinking, oh, no, work, 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 and this burden, burden, burden. And that's because things have been distorted. But the Sabbath was supposed to be there so that people could find rest and have rest and enjoy communion with one another as well as communion with God. But that had been distorted by a man-made form of Judaism. And Jesus ultimately would come, and he would be the one who would give us rest. Let me ask you a question. How many here are looking for rest? (laughs) And by that, I'm not just talking about physical rest. I'm just talking about spiritual rest, all these concerns and burdens and struggles that we have. We we want to find rest. Friends, that is not going to be found in a day. That is going to be found in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And there are too many people that are trying to pursue God by working their way to him. God, look at me. Look at what I'm doing for you. Look at how how I'm doing this for you. Isn't it good? I hope that I can do enough to satisfy what you need. They have a distorted view of God because that's what they've been taught. But God says, listen, come to me. Stop your laboring, stop your work, and in me you will find rest. So don't let your Christian religion get in the way of your relationship with Christ. True faith produces mercy and compassion. That's what was at the root of the heart of a man like William Wilberforce, whom God used to bring emancipation to the slaves in America. A godly Christian man who saw the injustice of what was happening and stood year after year fighting for these people in the political realm and finally brought about the end, at least, of the slave trading so that there could be progress and freedom for so many people. This mercy and compassion came as a result of his walk with God and his understanding that Jesus 
was the one whom man needed. True Christians care for the needs of the poor, of the of the immigrants, of cultural outcasts, of, of the unstable, of drunks and addicts and prisoners and AIDS victims. And I'm not saying go out and find one of them today. What I'm saying is as God allows you to live your lives and you encounter people, have compassion. Not just because I said it, but allow the gospel to, to flow out of you so that you can discern and you can have compassion that is exercised in a wise way. Don't hand money out. But you've probably been there. You've been in a situation where there's someone sitting outside of McDonald's. Of course, you never go to McDonald's. I know that. You go to healthy places, right? So you're, you're at this healthy restaurant, and, and this guy is sitting there, and he looks like he's hungry. Buy him a meal. Pull out a menu and say, what do you want? I'll get it for you. Bring the food out to him. Okay? There are ways that you can be a blessing. Why? Because it's a result of the compassion. Look what Christ has done for you. Live out of the gospel. Live out of the fruit of the gospel, not the, the burdensome. You don't say, well, you know what? When you figure it out, when you've come to church, maybe I'll do something for you. No, that's not how we're supposed to function. True Christians care about sinners. We care about people who are in bondage to their sin. Do we still see people as those who are in bondage, those who are kept and tied up in the sinfulness of their sin. Do we see that, or do we just kind of like, eh, go on our merry way? Do we bring up opportunities to talk about the things of God? Friends, it is, it is costly sometimes to be merciful and compassionate. Now, let me just quickly leave you with three concluding thoughts, because I think these flow out of this text, and it's worth us seeing why these are important. I'll just highlight them quickly. First of all, I see in this passage really a call to, to three things, and I think they're incredibly important. Number one, it's a call for us to be Christ-centered. You see, the, the, the passage here says, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, what does that mean? The Son of Man is, is one of the, the favorite ways that Jesus refers to himself. It's really a, a, a breathtakingly audacious statement. If you want to understand the Sabbath rightly, you need to understand it in relationship to Jesus. The Sabbath points to him. The Sabbath finds its true fulfillment in him. But this is ultimately what it means. It means that Jesus is putting him at the center of everything. He's saying, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the Lord. When we use this popular expression, we've got to be Christ-centered, it can just become something we just rattle off, right? But what it means is that you are saying, Jesus, I want you to be in the center of my world. That means you can't be indifferent to him. You can't just push him to the outside. You can't just, you know, simply want to add him to your life and bring him up every now and then as some crisis comes up. Oh, Jesus, I'm going to come running to you and then that kind of thing. No, he wants to be central in everything. And he is. The question is whether or not you will submit yourself to that. Now, that's, a, that's an offensive statement. That was offensive to the Pharisees, and it's offensive to us. The gospel is good news, but it is offensive to proud hearts. So if Jesus is knocking on your door, he's knocking on your heart saying, consider this gospel. I, I, I am coming to you. I'm, I'm offering this gift of new life. He died on the cross in your place. He bore his, your sins on his shoulders. He rose again the third day. If you'll embrace him as Lord and Savior, you will find rest. That's because you've allowed him now to be central in your life, to be the Lord of your life. And if you're a child of God and you push Jesus out, confess your sin of pride. Confess your sin of arrogance. Humble yourself before him. Worship him as Lord once again of your life, of your marriage, of your family, of your neighborhood, of your commute, of your visit to the doctor, whatever it might be, he wants to be central in it all. That's what it means to be Christ-centered. Secondly, it's a call for us to be word-driven. 
Just listen to the example of Christ. Jesus, yes, could have direct, you know, dealt with the pettiness of what they were doing, but he, he opens the word of God. He allows the word of God to be that mirror to show them what was truly in the heart. And friends, this is, this is where we need to come. We need to come face to face with God's word and allow it to be a mirror into our souls, into our hearts, and, and in such a way that we're willing to do what it says. Now listen, I, I, I know, I know what you're probably thinking. We all know, if we're Christians, that, that a steady habit of spending time in the Bible is, is just foundational to what it means to be a Christian. If I were to go and ask Steph Curry, say, hey, listen, you know, how often do you dribble the ball? How often do you shoot it? How often do you, do you pass it? He says, well, those are all foundational to me playing basketball, so I do that a lot. Well, reading God's Word is foundational to being a Christian. But sometimes we're not drilling, we're not shooting, we're not passing the ball. Now, I want to be careful here. I, I know this is a right place for us to feel guilty, but this is an area where so many of us actually do feel guilty because we fail. And I know, some, you know sometimes we promote like a, the Robert Murray McShane reading plan, which is four chapters a day. And, you know, you might start out, you know, January, you get to January 15th and something happens. It's like, oh, I failed, I failed. No, friends, listen. The goal is not to check off every box. The goal of any kind of reading plan is to simply allow yourself to be in the stream of the, of the Word of God, where God is ministering to your soul. And we want to help you to do that. We don't want your Bible reading, which is supposed to be a blessing to be a burden. We don't want it to be bondage. We want it to be delight. We want it to be joy. But it is something that we need to be involved in. I just, just encourage you to read Psalm 1 or Psalm 119. And then finally, I think this breathes out for us also the need to be grace-motivated. The Pharisees were not the only ones present on those two occasions. There were also the crowds. There were also the disciples. And he's showing all of them that he is ushering in a new kingdom, a kingdom of grace, hear this, that was already present in the Old Testament because that's what the Sabbath was for. But he's bringing it back again in this new kingdom and reminding them that grace needs to be part of this new kingdom in the New Testament. God graciously and lovingly has given us this grace so that we can do what we need to do. But here's what happens, guys. We go out of here, we turn on talk radio, we, 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 we watch news stations, we, we check Facebook and all the little links that come from Facebook, and we have blogs that we read. And we can so easily become full of anger and rage and, and hypocrisy and hard-heartedness toward people or toward a people group can rise up within us, can't it? And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Be grace-motivated. Have compassion. People who need Christ, people who are confused, people who truly themselves are in bondage. You see, the Pharisees needed, their, needed to see their hypocrisy, that the crowds and the disciples needed to see the lack of compassion and hard-heartedness, and we need to see it too. Final question. How have you taken what is supposed to be a gift and a blessing from God and turned it into a burden? Personally, as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a fellow church member, it's worth us asking the question, and it's worth us considering the answer. Lord, we ask for your help today. We thank you for the directness of Mark. We thank you that Jesus is on display in such a vivid way. Thank you, Lord, that we not only see the, the agenda that Jesus has to come and to minister and to preach, but he's also coming correcting error. And, Lord, as he does that, 
He's exposing hearts for what they really are. And Lord, as he does that, there's a sense in which our hearts are also exposed on the same levels with the same things. Lord, would you have freedom to expose our hypocrisy? To show us what's really going on in our hearts. To show us areas in our lives that we are hard-hearted toward brothers and sisters in Christ or even neighbors or people that we meet. Lord, may we not be guilty of what the Pharisees are guilty of. But Lord, when we find ourselves guilty, may we come running to you, humbling ourselves, repenting of our sin, finding satisfaction and rest in you because of the peace that resolves everything because of the cross, because of the gospel. We don't deserve it, Lord, but we are in awe of you because of what you do on our behalf, what you have done, and how you continue to minister to us. Help us now, we ask in your precious name. Amen.